Good morning and a very warm welcome on this chilly morning. A warm welcome to Essex Church, home of Kensington Unitarians. Welcome to our time of worship, the time when we acknowledge the worth of ourselves, of one another and of all creation. A few opening words by uh, Kathleen McTeague. We come together this morning to remind one another, to rest for a moment on the forming edge of our lives, to resist the headlong tumble into the next moment, until we claim for ourselves awareness and gratitude, taking the time to look into one another's faces and see their communion the reflection of our own eyes. This house of laughter and silence, memory and hope, is hallowed by our presence together. We've got two candles to light this morning. Um, this is the, in the Christian calendar, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent's a time of, of expectation, of looking forward, looking forward to, uh, to Christmas but also a time of expectation and looking to see the divine in the ordinary, in the ordinary events of our lives. So I'm going to light the first of our Advent candles and then the chalice candle, the symbol of our worldwide liberal community. The first reading that I'd like to share with you this morning uh, is taken from a, a book by Margaret Silf, uh, 100 Wisdom Stories from Around the World. Uh, and this is a story called The Window. And it's really a story that reminds us that uh, vision is more than just what we see. It's the story of two men who were both seriously ill in the same ward uh, of a large hospital. It was, a quiet, it was quite a small ward with just room for the pair of them, a door opening on the corridor and one window looking out onto the world. Now one of the men was allowed to sit up for an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon, and his bed was next to the window. But the other man had to spend all his time flat on his back, and both of them had to be kept quiet and still. One of the disadvantages of their condition was that they weren't allowed to do much. No reading, no radio, no television. They just had to keep quiet and still. Just the two of them. Well, they used to talk for hours and hours about their wives and children, their homes, their jobs, what they did during the war, where they'd been on holiday, all that sort of thing. And every morning and every afternoon, when the man, the man in the bed next to the window was propped up for his hour, he would describe what he could see outside, and the other man almost began to live for those hours. The window apparently overlooked a park with a lake, and there were the usual ducks and swans, children throwing them bread and sailing model yachts, young lovers walking hand in hand beneath the trees, and there were flowers, mainly roses, but with a magnificent border of dahlias and marigolds, bronze and gold and crimson. In the far corner was a tennis court, and at times the games were really good. And there was cricket, not quite up to test match standard, but better than nothing. And there was a bowling green, and right at the back, a row of shops 
shops with a view of the city behind. And the man on his back would listen to all of this, enjoying every minute how a child nearly fell in the lake, how beautiful the girls were in their summer dresses, then an exciting tennis match. And he got so that he could see almost everything that was happening out there. Then one afternoon, when a batsman was knocking some slow bowling all over the cricket ground, the thought struck him. Why should the man next to the window have all the pleasure of seeing what was going on? Why shouldn't he get that chance? He felt ashamed and tried not to think like that, but the more he tried, the worse it became, until in a few days it all turned sour. Why wasn't he near the window? But then an opportunity came. For one night, the other man became seriously ill and died during the night. The man had mixed emotions. He wanted that bed, and yet he felt guilty that the man had died. As soon as it seemed decent, he asked to be moved to the bed next to the window. And they moved him, tucked him in, and made him quite comfortable, and left him alone to be quiet and still. But the minute they'd gone, he levered himself up on one elbow, painfully, laboriously, gasping, and looked out of the window. It faced a blank wall. The story of the window. The second reading I'd like to share with you this morning is the story of the Kalama Sutra, not the Karma Sutra. <laughs> um, and it's from a book, uh, You Don't Have to Sit on the Floor, uh, by a man with a wonderful name called Jim Pim. And Jim Pim is a, a Quaker, um, but he's a Buddhist Quaker. And it's called You Don't Have to Sit on the Floor because... And if any of you have been along to, to Buddhist meditation or any kind of meditation, there's this thing that you have to sit cross-legged on the floor. And he said, well, that's only because people in the East sit cross-legged on the floor normally. Here in the West, we sit on chairs, so why can't we meditate on a chair? Um, and this is about his first experience of um, meeting uh, Buddhism and hearing this story, which really turned his life round. He was brought up as a Roman Catholic and then left the church when he was about 14, um, became a member of the Communist Party in Glasgow, and one night was going along to what he thought was a meeting of the Communist Party, and went on the wrong night, and ended up going to a Buddhist meditation class. And he writes, The Kalama Sutra is the teaching that the Buddha gave to the Kalama people. For me it was, and still is, one of the most important of all Buddhist teachings for it resolved the problem that I had over the question of faith. Representatives from the Kalama people came to see the Buddha and asked about the various teachers who visited their town. Most of these teachers, having taught what they believed, reviled and pulled to pieces the doctrine of others. They were uncertain as to how to discover which of the teachers told the truth. The Buddha starts by giving them the freedom to doubt and question, telling them, It is proper for you to doubt, to be uncertain. Uncertainty has arisen in you as to what is doubtful. 
then he tells them in a positive way, Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumour, nor upon what is written in scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor upon specious reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, the monk is our teacher. Kalamas, when you, see, when you yourselves know these things are bad, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, abandon them. He then gives the positive aspect with the same reasoning. If things are good, free from blame, endorsed by the wise, accept them. And Jim Pim goes on. This was just what I had been needing to hear. Here was one of the world's great spiritual teachers, I knew that much about Buddhism, telling me that religion did not necessarily demand faith, advising me to test things for myself and to accept only those things that proved to be good and helpful. Its impact was as great as if I had heard the Buddha speaking to me personally. Some thoughts from Jim Pim. A few weeks ago, I was going up into central London, and because I was running slightly late, I decided to take the tube from Elephant and Castle. For those of you who don't know that station, it's one of those that has lifts rather than escalators, and the lift has two sets of doors, one that you go in and then one you go out when you get to the bottom. Now, I've done this journey several times, and I know which door I should exit from. Rather unusually, I was the only person in the lift. I duly walked over to the other side, only to notice that the door that I'd come in had a sign above it lit up saying, exit this side. Now, I knew from experience that that wasn't the way out. And if I'd thought about it more logically, there would be no point in having two doors if you went in and out of the same one. But despite being a free-thinking Unitarian, I still thought that the authority represented by the illuminated sign must be correct. And I dutifully walked back towards the door I'd come in, only to find that as the door, as the lift reached the ground floor, I was at the wrong end. The door that I knew from experience was going to open, Julie did, while the door that said, exit this side, remained firmly closed. That little incident reminded me of Jim Pim's first encounter with Buddhism and the eureka moment that he had when he heard the Kalama Sutra for the first time that we heard in our reading. It took me back to the reason that I felt I needed to move out of mainstream Christianity and find a space, a sacred space, in which I could reflect on how I experienced life, including my spiritual life and explore the apparent gulf between what I had been taught and what made sense in the context of my daily experience. I also wanted to look at the real-life experience of other people 
who seemed to be living lives of integrity and authenticity, but who didn't fit into the accepted norms of the church. I remember discussing some of my dilemmas with another Anglican priest at the time and saying that in order to be Orthodox Christians, we were putting spiritual carts before spiritual horses. For example, the creeds, uh, and I know there was a huge political agenda when they were written, but the creeds and the scriptures of both the Old and the New Testament were the product of men and women trying to make sense of a great spiritual experience in their lives. The experience came first, then they tried to capture it in words. We now, however, are expected to to take the words of others and turn them back into experiences, and it doesn't work that way round. At least it doesn't work if we don't also heed what's going on in our own lives. I likened my questioning or my inability to just see what I had been taught to that picture that psychologists sometimes use to discuss perception. The drawing that can either be seen as a beautiful young woman or an old wrinkled woman. It depends on how you look at it. But once you've seen the other image, you can't unsee it. So I gained comfort from the story of the Buddha and felt that I had been given permission to question and listen to my experience. It's probably worth saying, though, that despite the encouragement of the Buddha to question, it can be just as difficult for a Buddhist as it is for a Christian to question and challenge tradition. Great spiritual leaders teach us wisdom, but their followers can often make it difficult to hear that wisdom. As I was thinking about valuing experience, I happened to listen to one of Melvin Bragg's In Our Times programmes on Radio 4. It was about that very British school of philosophy, empiricism, that dealt with this very subject in the late 17th um, and early 18th century. The central view of empiricism is that sense experience is the major or only source of real knowledge. Not surprisingly, this approach to life found a natural home in Protestant Christianity that had little truck with mystical experience or doctrines handed down by authoritarian bishops and was firmly rooted in the word rather than in the drama of ritual, albeit that many of the words were relating miraculous events. It suggested that the great empirical philosopher John Locke was a Unitarian, and that his belief that we are all born with a a tabula rasa, or a clean slate, on which our own personal experiences are written, reflects the early Unitarian rejection of the idea of original sin, the belief that we inherit an evil disposition. Of course, the potential shadow of rejecting the idea of inherited disposition to evil is that we are each totally responsible for all our behaviour. This can, in turn, lead to a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality, the kind of mentality that has possibly led to the resistance to universal health care in the United States. Because there is a belief that we all start in the same place, 
and we're all responsible for our own lives. It's perhaps just a reminder that whichever approach to life we take needs to be balanced and that um, both sides can go in the wrong direction. And when you begin to look more closely at the seemingly simple approach to life, relying on your own experience, and I'm speaking now as a listener to Radio 4, not as a philosopher, when you look at it more closely, it's not as simple as it first appears. For example, if all I know are my own experiences, how do I know that an external world exists? Indeed, the Anglo-Irish bishop and philosopher George Berkeley, building on and critiquing the work of Locke, said famously that if a tree fell in the middle of a forest, it wouldn't make a sound because there would be nobody there to hear it. Berkeley argued that if we take empiricism to its natural conclusion, then the external world doesn't exist. Eventually, however, he invoked the existence of God to prove that our external world does does exist, for creation exists in the mind of God. I'm also reminded that what I see with my own eyes may, in fact, not exist. When I look into the night sky on a clear evening, and I'm not in the middle of London, I see stars that died out several thousand years ago. I'm also aware that in my ordinary mundane life, I bring my past experiences, my prejudices, my mindset to everyday encounters. I see what I expect to see. There was a wonderful example of this uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, Jane and I and Jim Corrigal were travelling down to Brighton for a meeting of the Unitarian Christian Association. Three of us were sitting at a table for four and across the passageway on the train uh, there was a young couple sitting at another table for four. Then as the train pulled out of Victoria, a rather dodgy looking character with a baseball cap scarf around their face, gaudy tracksuit bottoms, and with a can of lager in their hand, and it was only 10 o'clock in the morning, moved from the seat behind and plonked themselves next to the girl, saying, got to stretch my legs. You could almost feel the tension in the air as we all tried to be very British and pretend that they weren't there. But we were all thinking, how will this turn out before we get to Brighton and we hadn't even reached Clapham Junction. Then, to make it worse, this odd person started humming. The tension rose. We were aware that it seemed slightly familiar what she was humming. And then, to make it worse, the guy who was sitting with the girl joined in. Then the drunk removed her baseball cap to reveal herself as the girl's best friend who had come to surprise her. The disguise was removed, revealing a rather elegant young woman who then proceeded to bring champagne and glasses from her bag and the birthday party began. What we initially saw and experienced was not reality. 
So what is the Buddha's teaching to the Kalama people and Locke and Berkeley's thoughts on empiricism have to say to us here in Kensington this morning? Well, what I think it says to me is that, yes, I do need to value my experience. I can't just rely on living the experience of others or just believing what others tell me to believe. But I also believe, and of course I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you are not all the product of my imagination. My, my nightmares are never that bad. I recognize that, um, and so I need to value your experience. I recognize that how I see things, like the drunk on the train, is not always objective. And I need to acknowledge and value the viewpoint of others. That's why I belong to a liberal religious community. I need people I disagree with, and who disagree with me, in order to fine-tune my spiritual antennae. It's what I value in our odd, irritating, unitarian community. I sometimes think it would make life easier if we all believed the same thing, i.e. what I believe. But that would make us very blinkered. And if you wear blinkers, you can't see the beauty of the panorama. Let me close with the thoughts of another great Buddhist, the great Vietnamese Buddhist Zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh, from his book Living Buddha, Living Christ. And he wrote, Professor Hans Kung has said, Until there is peace between religions, there can be no peace in the world. People kill and are killed because they cling too tightly to their own beliefs and ideologies. When we believe that ours is the only faith that contains the truth, and that can mean Unitarians as well, violence and suffering will surely be the result. The second precept of the order of interbeing founded within the Zen Buddhist tradition during the war in Vietnam is about letting go of views. It says, Do not think the knowledge you possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. That certainly gives me something to work on for the rest of the week, if not the rest of my life. Amen. May the love which overcomes all differences, which heals all wounds, which puts to flight all fears, which reconciles all who are separated, be in us and among us, now and always. Amen. <laughs>